O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. Those are verses 17 to 21 of Psalm 71, which along with Psalm 70 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, March the 17th, 2021. Two, sorry. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. Uh, Happy St. Patrick's Day to all who are out there today. It's... uh, been a fortuitous day in my life. Um, the 20, let's see, what would it be? 23 years ago today, my father died. Um, and it's, you know, it was a traumatic, obviously, kind of an event for me. And even though I was 38, I guess, at the time. So the odd thing was, though, that, that later my mother gave us, me and my brothers, a copy of something my dad had done when he was in high school, and sort of his own, sort of his autobiography to that point in time, and he chose to do it in the form of like a movie script because at the time he was big into that. So, um, but one of the things he had to, questions he had to answer in order to do this autobiography thing was, what food do you hate? And it turned out that he hated at that time corned beef and cabbage, and so um, sort of oddly prophetic that my father who didn't like corned beef and cabbage, at least when he was 18, died on St. Patrick's Day. Um, But anyway, so every time St. Patrick's Day rolls around, that's what I think of. So anyway, here we we are. We're going to be looking at um, Jeremiah still. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10 and then 19 to 28. And then the gospel today is John 5, 19 to 29. And the epistle is Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 2. Verses 12 to 24. And so you'll know, because I don't often say this, but so you'll know the, the, uh, the lessons that I use, I don't choose these. These are just from the Episcopal Church's 1979 Book of Common Prayer, the Daily Lectionary, which is a two-year cycle of readings. Um, so anyway, just there's a heads up on, on what that is. I don't always remember to say this is what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. So um, there's the information on where these lessons come from. So in this Jeremiah lesson, um, it begins with the Lord saying something. In, in that day, declares the Lord, courage shall fail, both king and officials, and the priests will be appalled and the prophets astounded. In other words, it's going to transcend this, this day of judgment that he's talking about. It's going to transcend um, anything that they could imagine. It'll be so bad that the c- courage will fail both king and officials, and the priests will be appalled and the prophets astounded. It's going to take everybody by surprise. And then I, Jeremiah, said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying it shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. He's saying, Lord, it, so- it seems like that, that you have deceived your own people. Because we keep hearing, it shall be well with you, it shall be well with you. And that's the word from the lying false prophets. And, and that's an important thing to remember, is, is that, that we always have to test words that come to us. If we have a prophetic person who comes and says something to us, we have to test that word. We're expected to do that. We're not expected to take it uncritically. We're supposed to take that before the Lord and say, is this true or not? And so then the Lord begins, after... 
Isaiah says this, you know, it looks like you've deceived your people. The Lord says, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. I mean, this is, this is God speaking. And, and it's the anguish of a lover. <clears throat> my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows, hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? So what he's saying is, is that here it comes. The judgment's coming, and the battle cry is on. The trumpet announces the battle, and then the, they're devastated. For my people are foolish. They know me not. They're stupid children. They have no understanding. They are, quote, wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. So what, what is that image from? Formlessness and void. Heavens, no light. So it's pre-creation is what, it, what it's talking about. But, but it's now. It's returning to that formlessness and void. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the field had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. And so what he's seeing is a return to sort of the primeval chaos that existed before God said, let there be light and overcame formlessness and void by putting things exactly the way he wanted them. And here, what's, what's being said is, is that it looked like it was so bad that it looked like that pre-creation chaos that existed um, before God said, let there be light. It was that bad. And then we see in Revelation, we see that same thing. God tearing apart his good creation Stars of the sky being swept out, the sun and the moon being darkened, all the things that that he talks about in the Revelation, the judgment that he pours out on his own creation to get the attention of man created in his image. And yet they come up with alternative explanations for what's actually going on here. We avoid the idea of judgment by claiming, oh, it's something else. You know, maybe it's climate change, maybe it's whatever. But, but there's always an alternative explanation for why something happened, right? Because we're scientific. So the... What Revelation and here in Jeremiah, what we get is is this sort of a return to the chaos of what was prior to creation. And then in Revelation, we see the new heavens and the new earth come down. He says, for thus says the Lord, quote, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this, the earth shall mourn and the heavens above be dark, for I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. And so remember when we looked at some of the, like in Jonah, for instance, um, the, the people of Nineveh even say, who knows, maybe God will relent of his judgment if we do the right repentance. And there's other places throughout Scripture where we say that God has relented you know, in, in Joel's prophecy, the thing that we start Lent with, actually, he, he says, maybe God will relent. If we call a solemn fast and a solemn assembly, maybe God will relent of the judgment that he has against us, and he will leave behind a blessing. But here God's saying, I am not going to relent. These things will be. And it's largely because my people won't listen to my prophet. They won't hear my word because they keep hearing lying prophets who prophesy falsely to them they prophesy prosperity when in fact i'm bringing judgment 
And so it's it, God's saying to, uh, to Jeremiah, let them know, I'm not going to change my mind here. They're not going to do anything to change my mind. They're so far gone, so lost that they don't know good from bad, right from wrong. They know how to do evil, but they have no idea how to do good. In the gospel passage, remember Jesus has gone back up to the festival, which would probably be Pentecost. And then so he comes comes up and he's speaking to people there in the place. And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So so what he does, he says, is that, that he sees what the father's doing and he does that very thing. He cooperates with the work of God in the world. And that's the important thing that we need to do. We need to see what God's doing, go bless that and, and get on board and be a part of what God's doing in the world already. Whatever this father does, that the son does likewise. He's, it's, you, know, you can see this picture in your mind, right, of, of a kid who wants to be exactly like his father. And that so when he sees his father doing something, it's why when I was a kid, right, we had those little plastic lawnmowers. Why do we have a plastic lawnmower? It doesn't cut the yard. It doesn't do anything. And, and who wants a lawnmower? But it's what we saw our fathers doing. And so because we saw our fathers doing that, we needed our own little lawnmower to do this with. And that's the image that Jesus has given us here is is that he sees the father, observes the father, keeps his eyes on the father, and then goes and does what the father is doing. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. That's an interesting idea. Why is it that he's going to do these things? Why is it that he is going to, to, to do these signs? It's so that the people may marvel. They'll have no excuse because they've never seen these kinds of things before. And so they've got to come up with a judgment about what's going on. And so what, what we see later is that they will marvel, but then they will, because they've predetermined that Jesus is not the Messiah, then they're going to ascribe these works to Beelzebub the things that he's doing. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to, life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And those two things go together. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. And so then judgment is given to the Son. So, so those two things are related. Those two concepts are he, he heals and gives life to those he will. So it's completely within his discretion. But what it's also saying is, is that judgment has been given to them, to him, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In other words, when he does the things that he does, whenever he gives life to people, it's not without reason. It's not indiscriminately that he does this. No, what it says is that he's making a judgment and then carrying out that judgment. And that judgment can be, that's somebody I want to bless. That's somebody I want to give life to. <clears throat> Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In other words, if you reject me, you're rejecting God as well. I mean, it's a powerful statement, and it's a powerful claim, and you can understand why somebody gets crucified for making statements like this. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. That's a powerful statement. I mean, if you think that Jesus is not making claims to be in the Messiah, to not be in the, the incarnate Son of God, then then you're not paying very close attention. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. I don't think you could make a bigger claim than that. I think it's absolutely impossible, in fact, to make a bigger claim than Jesus makes right there. And then he says, amen, amen, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live and witness that in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And also um, a couple of other people, the centurion's uh, daughter and then the, the uh, synagogue official's child. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also, and the widow of Nain too, by the way, her son. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. So he has control of life. It's a different kind of life that the father has, but the son has that same life. That's how we get to the words that we say in the creed about homoousius of the same substance. So that, that, that's this. That's this life in himself, and it's a life that never ends. It's perpetual. And he has given him authority to execute justice because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so it's the time is coming when that judgment will happen. And so what are we going to, which side are we going to be on? Are we going to be on the side of life or are we going to be on the side of judgment and death? In the epistle, Paul tells us how we go from one place to another and what it looks like. He says, all have sinned and without the law will perish without the law. That's Gentiles. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So both those things, those two classes of people are the same. If you don't have the law, you're going to perish without the law, but if you've sinned under the law, then you're going to be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous for, before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So it, it, it's sort of this idea that in within Judaism that there's two different classes of people, essentially. There's Jews and non-Jews. But then within the non-Jews, there's another group of people, and that other group of people are those who are within the Noahide covenant, those who accept basic rules of, of human conduct and, and about life and how to live. And if you obey those laws, then you will participate in the life to come. If you don't, then you're going to be given over to judgment. But, but it has to do with doing. It's not just memorizing stuff. It's doing the things that you believe and know that God approves, whether you have the law or don't have the law. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. What they have then, Paul says, is this. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, which is covenant language. It's the covenant language of Jeremiah who says that there will come a day when I will write my laws on their hearts. And so it's the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is they have the Holy Spirit. If you see people doing all the right things, if you see them being obedient to what the law is, even though they don't know the law, then what it's evidence of is, is that God's written the law in their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so they belong to him because of that. Their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so Paul says that, that they can know the law without actually having the law. And their thoughts, their conflicting thoughts, and he's going to talk more about that in Romans 7. Um, what, he's, what he's saying here is, is that when they get confused about what's right and wrong, then, then either those conflicting thoughts about what they've done or are or, or going to do, they either accuse them or excuse them, depending on whether they do the right thing or not. He said, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what's excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish— a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? In other words, when you're, when you're helping other people because you believe that you're an expert in the law, when you do those things, when you train people up in the law, are you also teaching yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's because you're a hypocrite. It's because you hold yourself out to be a teacher and a leader, and yet you're not doing the things that the law says you should do. And so you've brought dishonor on God because you have been raised up as a leader, and it's the reason we have to be careful about who's raised up as leaders in the church, and also the reason that we need to be clear about things like church discipline. That if, if somebody sins in a public way, we need to, we need to be prepared to deal with that in, a, in an equally public way, but in a loving way as well. And that's exactly what God's continually asking through the prophet. I want to see you come and repent of these sins. I'm calling you to account for these things. I'm allowing you to know exactly what I'm judging you for in, other, in order that you would know exactly what to repent of. And, and what he has said already through Jeremiah or to Jeremiah is, is that they returned, but not really. They returned for all the wrong reasons. And so it's a phony kind of righteousness that they're doing. They're doing it in order to curry favor with me, rather than truly believing what they were doing was wrong. They're doing the right thing so that I will materially bless them. And, and it's important that we keep that distinction there. We, we want to do the things that God wants us to do in order that we might please our Heavenly Father who has had mercy on us and loves us. We want to do and have the same attitude that Jesus did. He wants to do what the Father is doing in order that he might experience more of the Father's pleasure and more of the Father's presence. And that's our motivation for everything that we do is because we want to love the world in the same way God loved the world. And so we do lay down our lives. We take up our cross and we follow him. But we see the places where he's working in the world and, and we see things through his eyes and then we beseech him to work through us to resolve these things and to heal.